The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Hi, this is Interrevolutionary Radio with Beth Green and your co-host, James Maynard. Today we are going to be playing an encore of an interview with Dr. Larry Dossey a couple of months ago. It was such an exciting interview and many of you missed it. So we are going to be playing it again. But there's a couple of things you should know. First of all, we're going to be adding the new news. We're not going to be putting in the news of the inner revolution from last June. And also, you may be hearing the name Inside Out, the Inner Revolution during this recording. Well, that's because when we first had this interview with Dr. Dossie, we were Inside Out, the Inner Revolution. But it's just us, still Inner Revolutionary Radio. Please enjoy this program and pass it on. Welcome to Inside Out with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic are we really connected to each other and a greater consciousness? Dr. Larry Dossey says yes, and it matters. A guy steps on your foot. Ouch! Are you feeling his pain or just yours? It's horrible to see people getting blown up in Iraq. But is it as painful as your spouse dumping you after 25 years? Nah. nah. <laughs> <laughs> My hangnail hurts me a lot more than those people getting blown up in Iraq, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Oneness is a great idea, but is it real? Here are scientists who says yes. Dr. Larry Dossey is a physician, executive editor of Explorer, Journal of Science and Healing, former co-chairman of the panel on mind-body interventions, renowned world lecturer and author of One Mind. And he says he knows that we're not separate, but rather part of something bigger. Not only is he ready to share his evidence today, he says connecting to one mind is better for our world and our health. Overcoming the feeling of separateness is part of the inner revolution. So let's welcome Dr. Dossie to our show. Thanks so much, James. I am so excited about the inner revolution. It's a global movement of consciousness where we're all becoming so much more aware of our oneness, our accountability, and mutual support. Sometimes it's hard for us to believe that there really is an inner revolution going on, especially when we look at the news. But our job here at Inner Revolutionary Radio is to bring you the news of the inner revolution every week. And we have some incredible news. Sometimes we have so much news, we just can't even bring it to you. So there really is a movement of consciousness on the planet today. And uh, today I'm going to right now turn this over to uh, James, and he's going to tell you some of the astounding and wonderful tidbits of the week. Yes, thank you very much, Beth. Our first interrevolutionary news comes from the New York Times from October the 24th. And this is entitled, In Man's Game, Mark Herlick is standing up for women. NFL football player Mark Herlick, linebacker for the New York Giants, grew up in locker rooms, from peewee football to the NFL. Herlick said, Locker to locker, the setting is marinated in machismo, with a lineup of employees celebrated for their toughness. In recent seasons, as the NFL was shamed by multiple domestic violence arrests, Herlick knew it was crucial that he work to change the culture of the locker room. The culture of the locker room. Don't you love it? Yes. <laughs> Go on, right? <laughs> so he says, In the beginning, you'd call people out and tell them that something they said, locker room talk, wasn't really funny. It would be the kind of thing you would never say in front of a woman, but since it's all men, they thought it was okay. It was not okay with Herlick, and he had a specific reason. Five years ago, his then-girlfriend and future wife, Danielle, revealed that she had been seriously physically and emotionally abused by her father, from the age of nine until she was 15. Danielle's revelation changed Mark's entire outlook, who in the years since has emerged as one of the NFL's more forceful advocates of raising players' awareness of domestic abuse. He stated, Yes, the majority of men don't commit violence against women, but men overall need to stand up to other men. Don't just hold yourself accountable. Hold others accountable to treat women how they deserve to be treated. 
Mark and Danielle Herlich have become volunteers for a variety of domestic violence awareness groups, including the Joyful Heart Foundation, which aids survivors of sexual assault, domestic violence, and child abuse. One of their projects is to stage a domestic violence awareness event at a Giants home game, which in fact will take place this Sunday at MetLife Stadium against the Dallas Cowboys. Fans and attendants will be encouraged to use social media to speak out against domestic abuse. This is such a fantastic inner revolutionary story because, of course, women have been protesting domestic violence for a long time. But the inner revolution is when, you know, when we get it that we're accountable for what we do. And here's a guy who is being accountable for what men do and confronting men. I'm so moved by this. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about the NFL lately and about the violence in sports and in football in particular. And there is a huge correlation between domestic violence and football, I'm afraid to say. Or I I should say I'm sorry to say. I'm not afraid to say it. But um, this is so encouraging. I love this story. I really admire this guy. And, you know, it tells us something else. You know, we talk about the oneness. This guy had a personal relationship with a woman who was abused. His personal feelings towards her, his sense of oneness with this woman, is what turned him around. See, if we could all start feeling oneness with the people that we either victimize or we allow to be victimized, things would stop. All right, James, take it away. Okay, here's another story about men confronting the old patriarchal culture. It's dated October 22nd and it's from the Thomson Reuters Foundation. The article is by Anastasia Maloney. Meet Colombia's new men on the front line of confronting machismo. In Colombia, South America last year, there were nearly 76,000 reports of domestic violence, up nearly 10% from 2013. Such violence stems from Colombia's patriarchal and macho culture, say experts, which views women as inferior and tends to blame, blame women for the abuse inflicted on them and to condone it. Traditional gender roles, particularly in rural areas in which a woman is expected to stay at home and look after the children, while the man is seen as the breadwinner who imposes his will, still hold sway. Eight out of every ten cases of sexual assault against women and girls reported in 2014 took place at home. And that is not unusual. I mean, that's equally true here in the U.S. Efforts to stem the abuse have typically focused on empowering girls and women to address the violence they face. But the past decade has brought a growing recognition that boys and men must be in the forefront of combating gender violence, not just in Latin America, but around the globe. In Colombia, Javier Omar, a teacher, co-founded the Men and Masculinity Collective in 1996. He states, Without involving men, you can't reduce pervasive patriarchy and cycles of violence. It means working with boys to change their views of masculinity, of what it means to be a man in our society. Men have been taught to be violent, not caring. You need to make them discover a new type of man that leads to happiness, a better life, and becoming better fathers, lovers, and partners. Working with 13 to 22-year-olds in poor communities, the army, and schools, the program involves role play, such as boys experiencing what it's like to be harassed. Yeah, more oneness, more oneness. (laughs) Body painting, camping, dance, and theater. Group discussions are often guided by male peers, giving boys an outlet for their feelings. There's a lot more to this story that you'll want to hear, but we're going to be devoting a future show to this topic, and then you'll hear all about it. Thank you, James. I, by the way, the word is machismo. Oh, machismo. machismo. Yes, well, look at that. Two stories the same week about men who are taking accountability for their violence towards women. I mean, I am so encouraged. Well, I'm going to give you a little sneak preview on this. We have just booked a Anastasia Maloney, who is the woman who broke this story about these men in Colombia. She's going to be on our show on November 12th. I can't wait to talk to her. She's there. She works out of Colombia. She is an incredible journalist, very interested in humanitarian things. She's going to tell us all about it and some other things that she's discovered, as as well as many other topics that she's covering. So that's giving you a little bit of a clue that don't forget to tune in on November 12th or anytime thereafter to the podcast and find out more about this amazing, amazing story. 
But believe me, it's amazing because I've been in Latin America. I was there, I hate to tell you, 40 years ago. I don't think you would have seen this program 40 years ago. So there's hope. There's hope for men. There's hope for women. There's hope for humanity. Okay, take it away, James. And our final uh, news item is from one of our, uh, well, this is from our producer, from Christine. Uh, The source is the Thomas Reuters Foundation, Thursday, October the 22nd. Now, this article is not strictly about the inner revolution, but it is about giving people the opportunity to empower themselves. And we thought you'd like to hear about it. Cambodia eyes bright solar future with tuk-tuks and microfinance. Thanks to creative use of solar power, women like Win Soin, who used to scavenge at a rubbish dump in the Cambodian capital in Nam Penh, now makes a living for herself and her children selling coffee from an adapted adapted auto rickshaw called a tuk-tuk. Powered by solar panels on its roof, the tuk-tuk is not just part of a project bringing hope to disadvantaged women, but a vivid symbol of Cambodia's potential to become a solar powerhouse. The reason that I love this story and just wanted to include it is, it's not so much an inter-revolutionary story as it is the giving people the power to revolutionize their lives. So I thought that was great, and I really appreciate this news of the inner revolution. So let me just quickly say, for those of you who are not familiar with it, that the inner revolution is a movement of consciousness that's happening around the globe. And it's about us becoming more in tune with our oneness and really becoming accountable for our behavior and the impact of it and all of us together starting support to, to support the whole and to have the whole support us. So I don't want to take up another second because we have an incredible guest. This guy was talking about oneness and accountability and mutual support before some of you were born. Many of you, I hate to say. Anyway, I am so thrilled to introduce you to our featured guest, Dr. Larry Dossie. Beth, it's great to be on your show. Thanks for the invitation. Well, thank you, Larry. So I wanted to talk to you about this One Mind and your book, One Mind, and because I know that this is what you're teaching, you know, that we are one and we need to be mutually supportive and we'll be happier. But not to disappoint anybody, I have to ask you about something else first. You are one of the pioneers, I would say, of the integrative medicine movement uh, back in the early 70s. That was the 1970s. <laughs> for those of you who are too young to remember. And you are an inner revolutionary then too. And uh, I would love for you to share why you, uh, what you had to say then, why you said it, and what it was like to be one of those, you know, voices in the wilderness at that time. Because now everybody kind of like, oh, alternative medicine, integrative medicine, it's like becoming mainstream. But when you got going... It wasn't. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, there are several threads that I could uh, follow here, but uh, the overall issue for me was uh, two things. One, uh, my personal experiences of uh, what I call of a one-mind one uh, nature, uh, and also uh, beginning in the 1970s, there was just a flurry of experiments that uh, began to be done and uh, uh, in this field, which sort of nailed it down for me. If all I had to refer to was my own experiences, I would not probably have gone out uh, on a limb. But being able to fortify those and back them up with hardcore empirical data, for me, as a scientist in medicine, made all the difference in the world. I'll just give you one example of uh, what the experiences were like for me. Uh, Mind you, I I was educated uh, in the 1960s in medical school to believe that uh, it was all biochemistry and physiology as far as mind and consciousness were concerned. Everything that we call consciousness in mind were confined to the brain. Uh, and don't give me any of this Southern California woo-woo mystical stuff. <laughs> uh, that's my background. Uh, imagine my surprise when the first year I was in medical practice, I had a series of what we call precognitive dreams in which uh, I saw... In the dream, uh, events which would later play out the next day in patients. These were so detailed and camera-like in quality that uh, I just simply could not dismiss them. 
And, and soon after that, when my, many of my patients began to understand my interest in this area, they began to tell me their own intuitions and even dreams in which they would see the inside of their bodies and come to me with no symptoms whatsoever, but say, look, it was the most vivid dream I've ever had. I know what's going on. And we would do tests, and sure enough, that's what would be happening. Wow. So there was no way I could really uh, escape. <laughs> <laughs> Dismiss. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's as if a door was opened and I was shown something that had been denied possible during my education. And it was left up to me to either walk through the door or not. I felt as if I could not uh, uh, refuse uh, entering that domain. And uh, as they say, the rest is a sort of history. Well, uh, you know, we're going to have to go to break uh, in a minute, and then we'll have a long stretch. But uh, before we do, I have to ask you this. At that time, did you have much support, or did you feel pretty isolated? It was very lonely. Uh, Mind you, this was in Dallas, Texas, which uh, was heavily fundamentalist uh, Protestant. Uh, We said that we lived not in the Bible Belt, but in the buckle of the Bible Belt. Uh, So there was uh, very little uh, support for this sort of uh, uh, position. Uh, I was blessed by having a wife, uh, Barbara, who went on to write uh, almost 30 books in alternative medicine and nursing. Mm. She was my main support system. So she and I really evolved on this journey together together. over the course of about four decades, and uh, we're still going strong, I'm happy to say. I love that. (laughs) Bless you and your wife. So um, I'd like to ask you just a little bit more about what this experience was like, because people need courage. You know, I was talking about one of the three habits of the inner revolutionary is courage and support. And uh, I'd love you to talk more about how you had the courage to do this. But first, we need to go to station break. But guys, you stick with us because there's lots more to come. I'm Beth Green, and I want to help you revolutionize yourself and our world. Take advantage of my powerful intuition in a private consultation that will amaze you. Discover my five books, three CDs of original music, School of Intuitive Counseling, upcoming workshops, trainings, and community. Sign up for my newsletter and get a free PDF of my book, Living with Reality. Tune into Inner Revolutionary TV, my channel on voiceamerica.tv. Find this and more at my website, theinnerrevolution.org. Transform yourself and your world. Check out Beth Green's online community, theinnerrevolution.org, where you'll find effective support to become the person you really are. Find a variety of activities, including men's, women's, and family groups, low-fee counseling, workshops, events, and free support. Subscribe to our newsletter and receive a free PDF of Beth's book, Living with Reality. Meet a group dedicated to galvanizing the inner revolution sweeping our world, all at www.theinnerrevolution.org. You're tuned in to Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. To share your questions and comments, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to Inner Revolutionary Radio. Welcome back to Inner Revolutionary Radio. Today we are interviewing Dr. Larry Dossey, and I am so enjoying talking to him. I've already been moved by his story. Uh, I, I was just sharing with him that even though I read about his precognition experiences, uh, you know, as a young doctor, hearing him say it, I don't know why, it just impacted me more. It's like I could really feel him as a young man. It's like how he was brought up in a certain mindset, and then he had these experiences that just shook them up, and he did not flinch. I have seen over and over, and I bet you have seen this too, Larry. I know James has too, where people see evidence to the contrary of their belief system. But as I always say, you know, if, you know, if our experience and evidence contradicts our beliefs, our experience and evidence, reality has to go. <laughs> because, because That's exactly right. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's true. So 
nuts. I mean, it is completely nuts. That's why part of the inner revolution is standing up to everything we think we already know because it's probably wrong. And I want to know, what do you think, what can you attribute it to, aside from your lovely wife, that, that made you just willing to look at reality instead of throwing it away in order to conform and, you know, become a successful young doctor and, and have everybody in your community love you and all that stuff. What was it about you? Well, Beth, I don't, I don't want to make myself uh, out as a hero because uh, there are times when I tried to weenie out of uh, confronting <laughs> this, uh, <laughs> this reality, but I, it, it, that just didn't work for me. I, for example, I would be invited to give talks at medical schools about uh, mind-body medicine back in the early days of alternative uh, therapies, and I knew it would be a hostile audience going in, and so I would sort of uh, compromise and sanitize my talks of the really controversial stuff, even though I believed in it, and that didn't work well for me. I would always come away from those talks feeling sour, that just I had not been true to what I knew. Uh, one of the things that really clinched uh, this direction in my life was the experience of a significant medical illness, which almost ended my career in medicine before we got started. Uh, I was afflicted by classical migraine headache uh, from grade school onward. Uh, uh, it, it, it manifested not just as headache and nausea and vomiting, but partial blindness. Uh, this got so bad in medical school, I actually tried to drop out, but my my faculty advisor wouldn't let me. And then it got so bad that uh, in desperation in the late 60s, when biofeedback uh, therapy emerged on the national scene, I chased all over the country learning how to do this. And as many of your listeners will know, this involves learning how to get deeply relaxed and uh, using high-tech uh, equipment, electronic equipment, to monitor certain things in your body, like your heart rate and your blood pressure and so on. You learn how to achieve levels of relaxation that you just didn't know existed before. This was an amazing breakthrough for my understanding about consciousness because in about six sessions of biofeedback teaching, my uh, problem with migraine syndrome that had been present for almost two decades went almost totally away. Uh, wow. I could not back away from the role of consciousness as a mediator in my own physiology at that point. And it was around that time that I decided, what the heck? I, I don't care who uh, rejects this or accepts it, but it's going to be a part of who I am from here on out because to do otherwise would have been uh, exercise in hypocrisy that I just could not live with. You know, I have found that that is really the key because, you know, the... I once asked, see, uh, see, I haven't done the scientific work. I, as I said, I'm a mystic. I, I hear the, an inner voice, and it drives me. Sure. <laughs> Whether I want to or not, I have to do certain things, and uh, sometimes I'm scared to death, but I have to do it anyway. So I had heard, like in the New Age movement and certain other places, that, you know, when you have faith, there is no fear or the new religion. And I said, I, I don't get this, God. I said, you know, uh, that's not me. You know, yeah. I still have fear. And I heard the inner voice said to me so clearly, if you didn't have fear, you wouldn't need faith. So. Yeah. Yeah. So it's ridiculous. Having faith doesn't mean we don't have fear. It means that we act despite that fear. And that's, I say that because I want everybody in the audience to really feel inspired that they too can become more courageous. It, you don't have to be without fear. You, they're just, you just have to connect to something larger than yourself. You know, no, I that's, think that's very wise. Yeah, and, and we want people, because everybody has stuff that they need to stand up to. And you were putting a lot, of, a lot on the line. I mean, I remember in those days that doctors were God. Yeah, so that was the, <laughs> that was the going image. <laughs> Actually, uh, talking about consciousness and the role of spirituality in healing, uh, uh, was not exactly the best way to advance your career back in uh, the 1970s and 80s. But, but, you know, at some point, you either you face a huge uh, fork in the road and, you know, you have to choose which way you're going to go. Uh, I, I had assistance, I, I must say, because in the 1970s, 
the medical research looking at the interaction of mind and body just exploded. Uh, and within just a few uh, short years, I had an enormous body of evidence, empirical evidence, uh, double-blind clinical studies and that sort of thing, uh, which uh, served to fortify my uh, my position. So, you know, I'm always eager to pay homage to those people who really put a lot on the line back in the 70s, 80s to explore this area because it made it a lot easier for people like me. And when I hear young researchers and young doctors complain these days about how hard it is to take a stand for these things, I, I want to say, although it's hard to, to, to make this point to youngsters who really think it's just terrible these days, I want to say, boy, you should have seen it back in the 60s <laughs> or 70s. Yes. You know, even in Dallas, where I practiced internal medicine back in the late 60s, early 70s, jogging was a pejorative term. Uh, you know, exercise was controversial. Oh I mean, this sounds God. crazy now, but pe- drivers would stop joggers on the street and laugh at them and make jokes about them. We've come a long way, Beth, and thanks to people like you and James, uh, uh, it's a lot easier now than it was back in the good old days. Oh, you know, <laughs> I have to tell this story. It's kind of off the topic, but it isn't. Um, I, recently, I read this, uh, you know, we were preparing the news and there was a story about uh, a dress code in uh, a school in Pennsylvania for the girls for their, you know, commencement. And the girls were being given very sexist instructions about what they should do with their you-know-whats and all that stuff. And the boys were told to just dress relaxed. And this girl protested, and her mother was upset. And they put something on Facebook, and before you knew it, the school board pulled back. Now, this is so much in alignment, and, uh, and I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because I think this is a critically important issue. When I was a young person, when I, I was nine years old, I was threatened with expulsion from elementary school for standing up for certain things and against certain things during the McCarthy period when people were being arrested for what they thought. And when I was 16, I went and I wrote a letter to the New York Times about the nuclear proliferation and that in marching around the White House with 13 other students got me expelled and there was no protest, nothing, zero. There was no Facebook, there was no internet, there was no nothing. And, uh, and I, am, I am so, I cried when I read this thing about, you know, this, this girl that she got so much support and transgender people are getting support. It, it was so different then, Larry, and I'm so glad that you gave those examples from your experience because people, guys, if not now, when? You know what I mean? This is, we, there is so much freedom that we have now. There is so much power that we have through social media to spread what we believe in. It wasn't, it wasn't always like this. And, and we have a lot to be grateful for to the people who came before us, like, uh, the women's suffrage movement, you know, we, we didn't even have a vote a hundred years ago. Well, that's exactly right. You know, my wife is a historian of uh, Florence Nightingale, who was one of the uh, uh, most famous women in Victorian times, uh, aside from Queen Victoria, probably the most famous. Yes. And she uh, started uh, secular uh, nursing in the Western world and brought it to preeminence and respectability. Uh, and I, my wife Barbara and I have often talked. What could Florence Nightingale have done with Facebook? You know, oh, I, I, oh. It, it it really boggles your mind. She, you know, wrote ten thousand letters. It's the biggest collection in the British Library of personal letters. What could this woman have done with social media? We we really uh, are blessed with this uh, option today, and I think most people don't realize how sensational the difference it can make uh, in our reformation of the things that need changing. So true. And I think we're seeing the result of it even when people aren't conscious of it because more and more people are standing up. Well, there was this other guy who was going to give a, uh, he was the valedictorian and he wanted to come out as gay and he was shut up. But it got on Facebook. Now, they, uh, he, they, they still didn't let him speak, but other people heard him. I, you know, it's happening. It's, it's, it's part of the fabric of the inner revolution that we have these means. So you know, I would, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to add that uh, 
this is a definite form of oneness that uh, many people are taking advantage of uh, now. The kind of oneness that I uh, am uh, putting forward in the book, One Mind, is not exactly electronic uh, or digitally driven. It's another kind of uh, uh, oneness which operates at the level of consciousness uh, and, uh, and doesn't require a smartphone. I was just going to get to your next interrevolutionary stance. (laughs) 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 And, you know, everything that I read about Larry Dossier said, yes, yes, I agree. I so agree. I really agree with that. You know, it's like, uh, you know, you're talking about not only are we one with each other, but we're all one with something greater than ourselves. And you're a scientist. Can you start telling us about that interrevolutionary stand and... What you're trying to say? Well, one thing I discovered when I began to uh, educate, to self-educate uh, after I graduated from uh, medical school and postgraduate medical training, was to read a body of evidence which I didn't even know existed in medical school. It had to do with uh, consciousness research, where researchers of the highest caliber, genius-level researchers. Uh, began over 100 years ago to poke around in areas which we now call ESP, telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, and so on. I was astonished by that. I had been led to believe that this was just a crazy area, which if you ventured into it, it would do nothing except wreck your career. Uh, (laughs) I I found that was not true, however. And uh, one of the things that uh, I was heartened by was to discover that some of the greatest uh, people in contemporary science, particularly in the field of quantum physics in the 20th century, had actually believed these things which I had been told were nonsense. Uh, people like Erwin uh, Schrödinger and Max Planck, the, fa- the, the father of quantum mechanics, for goodness sakes, believed that consciousness in the world was fundamental and that matter was derived from consciousness. Now, uh, th- th- this uh, is a tradition of thought that has been uh, rejected in modern science. But there are thousands of studies now that support this point of view. And because of the experiments and the level the, the, the level of competence of the people who have actually stood up to this point of view, gave me an enormous courage to take a stand with them. And so I was able to say, look, you may... You may object to my points of view, but I stand with Schrodinger and Max Planck and Carl Jung and William James and many others who were pillars of wisdom in this culture, not just in psychology, but in hard science as well. So I just want to say that this point of view that I've written about in one mind uh, is not a fringe idea. It's just been shoved aside and, and forgotten. And I'm just trying to stand up for the evidence and people's experience that experiences that say this is really the way the universe works and people's experience i'm so glad you said that because you give examples of which we all have that we know things that we shouldn't know that we pick up people's feelings that we know what's going to happen or uh, you know my grandmother was 13 years old and lived in warsaw because she you know grew up in a jewish uh, you know shtetl a little town and she had to leave and she all of a sudden she knew her father had died and she made that trip back and he had just died i mean you know this is why do we have to throw away what we know just because of what we think well, I think we all suffer from some sort of cultural hypnosis. Yeah. Uh, it's so subtle that you don't know it's uh, happening to you. But if you uh, look at your life across decades, you can see that society says that some things are permissible to think and some, some aren't. Uh, if you went back, let's say, into medieval times, you know, this stuff that we condemned now as ESP and that sort of thing, was so common, it it didn't even raise any eyebrows. Uh, But with the scientific revolution, we threw all that aside, focused on matter and energy and so on, and we came out at the other end with uh, uh, a a very anemic view of who we are uh, as conscious human beings. Uh, I think we're cycling out of that now. Uh, There's no going back. The reason is uh, that the database is just so profound and overwhelming that uh, those of us who believe in the potency of consciousness in the world, is just, we're going to win the battle. The reason we are is because we have the evidence on our side. And also, 
we are at such a point in our history where it is absolutely crucial that we wake up. Uh, I think our future as a species depends on uh, this new view of consciousness for reasons we could go into. Yes, amen. And I want us to go into that. In fact, uh, in a couple of minutes, we're going to go to break, and then I'd really like you to talk about that. But first, why don't you give the full name of your book to the listeners? Because I, can, I have a memory like a sieve, so I wouldn't even try to remember it. <laughs> okay, here we go. Uh, the title is One Mind. Uh, the subtitle is How Our Individual Mind is Part of a Greater Consciousness and Why It Matters. Yeah! So why it matters, we're going to get to in a minute. But, you know, I had a thought when you were sharing, Larry, which was that, um, you know, religion and the predominance of superstition and magical thinking, which we still see uh, sometimes in our society, I think that they cause so much damage uh, to humanity that when we discovered science, we had a new toy and we threw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, and there is a fear of going back into that mindlessness of just, oh, it's thunder, so the gods are speaking, you know, the, mm-hmm. oh, God is snoring, you know, and, there, and we, we have a tendency to think in very dualistic terms. We don't see the complexity of what is. We don't think in an integrative way, and we probably were scared to go back to anything that looked remotely like spirituality and mysticism because, you know, then we'd back, be back to, uh, you know, putting Galileo in prison uh, you know, for having the scientific uh, thinking. So, uh, you know, there may be fear on both sides, you know, uh, fear the, the scientists may fear the people who are spiritual because mm-hmm. of what they might do and, you know, and the nonsense that sometimes gets uh, put forward and into the name of spirituality. And spiritual people are kind of, have been put down by scientists and kind of shrink back from actually thinking. But we need both. You know, we need faith, but it doesn't have to be blind. So, right. We don't have to park our analysis and logic and give up on intellectualism. That can be part of it. That's but we've right. we've drifted over to a severe uh, one-sidedness in all this, and it's time to correct it. That's right. We are whole people, and we need whole thinking. So we are going to take our next and last commercial break. But uh, stick with us, because when we come back, we're going to find out more about why it matters that we are one, because that is the crucial thing, isn't it? So stick around. I'm Beth Green, and I want to help you revolutionize yourself and our world. Take advantage of my powerful intuition in a private consultation that will amaze you. Discover my five books, three CDs of original music, School of Intuitive Counseling, upcoming workshops, trainings, and community. Sign up for my newsletter and get a free PDF of my book, Living with Reality. Tune into Inner Revolutionary TV, my channel on voiceamerica.tv. Find this and more at my website, theinnerrevolution.org. Transform yourself and your world. Check out Beth Green's online community, theinnerrevolution.org, where you'll find effective support to become the person you really are. Find a variety of activities, including men's, women's, and family groups, low-fee counseling, workshops, events, and free support. Subscribe to our newsletter and receive a free PDF of Beth's book, Living with Reality. Meet a group dedicated to galvanizing the inner revolution sweeping our world, all at www.theinnerrevolution.org. You're tuned in to Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. To share your questions and comments, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to Inner Revolutionary Radio. Before we take another step, I'd like Larry to give out his website. I yes, uh, thanks, Beth. It's... Uh, uh, LarryDossyMD.com. LarryDossyMD.com. And Dossy is spelled D-O-S-S-E-Y, by the way. Yes. And if you forget how it's spelled, you can always go into the Inside Out host page and look at the guests and you'll see Dossy, D-O-S-S. Because if it were me, I'd say, now, did he say it had any or that it didn't have any? Because <laughs> <So, laughs> that's the way I am. 
Uh, and it's not age. I've always been like this. So I'd like you to now talk about a little bit more about your book and why you think it matters that we are really one and part of something bigger than ourselves. Well, the main reason it uh, matters is that nature has designed us this way. Uh, you know, you can invoke the creator or whatever to mm-hmm. uh, fill in the blanks about nature, but nature did not design us to be alone. And I, I think that we have lost that message, particularly in Western democratic culture such as ours, where we have made an obsession of individuality and mm-hmm. so-called personhood. And, you know, to get ahead in this yeah. existence, you have to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. So I'm all for honoring personhood and individuality and, and uh, maturity and all of that, but... Uh, this coin has another side to it, which we have absolutely prohibited, and it's the recognition of the way that we interact and connect at a consciousness level with other people. Uh, uh, the data shows that people who have an overriding sense of uh, isolation and individuality uh, are not as healthy uh, as uh, people uh, who feel otherwise. Uh, they are not as creative uh, and uh, they pay a price for this overwinning sense of isolation and individuality. Uh, I think we should uh, focus on both sides of who we are. Uh, as long as we focus almost entirely on, on individuality, we will cut ourselves off from a kind of human experience that's very widespread, but that is highly criticized. Uh, things like sharing thoughts at a distance. Uh, sharing physical symptoms from someone else who uh, we're very emotionally close to. Mm-hmm. That can't happen. That's that mm-hmm. woo-woo sort of stuff nobody mentions. Uh, I have a file drawer of uh, letters from people all over the United States and Europe who tell me that they're happy to know that they're not crazy mm-hmm. and have felt extremely stigmatized for even mentioning sharing thoughts at a distance or physical symptoms or precognitive dreams about what will happen in the future and so on. These people pay a price. Unless we honor that side of human existence, then our personal existence will not have coherence. It will no longer make sense. So we need this uh, recognition of oneness with other people basically to keep sane uh, as uh, as human beings because this is an essential part of who we are. Yes, it's uh, it's true. It is literally true that we can't hurt someone else without hurting ourselves. And we don't recognize that. We don't recognize that on a conscious level, but we recognize it on a feeling level. When right. we are cr- cruel or hurtful to others, it makes us sick. It- well, that, that's literally true. And I, I want to use this term oneness not as a poetic uh, or symbolic uh, or in a metaphorical sense, but as something that is really literal. Yes. Uh, one thing I'm, that has made me sensitive to this uh, issue is that uh, I, I'm an identical twin, and uh, my twin brother and I have shared uh, thoughts and physical symptoms and feelings and emotions uh, at a great distance uh, all of our life. Uh, we, we just simply call it twin stuff. And uh, get on with it. But for a lot of people, uh, they pay a price for going public with these kinds of things. Yes. Uh, my wife is a twin also. So oh, my uh, goodness. Our, our, our household has been kind of a twin laboratory <laughs> <laughs> over the years. Uh, and uh, it's been interesting to me to look at the data and the research that uh, – points to why these things happen, not just in twins, but for other people. And I, I, I'm, I'm proud to say that love comes into this. People who have loving, distant relationships and have a deep sense of compassion for other people are just simply more, tr- more prone to experience these one-mind events in their life than people who uh, are burdened with a sense of total isolation and individuality. So there's a lot of spiritual issues that crop up here, among which you've already mentioned. Uh, issues having to do with healing, uh, which I, if I may make a shameless advertisement please, about, please I've written do. three books about the role of compassion and love and distant healing mm-hmm. and the role of loving, compassionate prayer to catalyze this sort of thing. A book called Healing Words was uh, uh, on the New York Times list for a while and 
sort of brought this to the attention of a lot of people in medical schools. So there are a lot of reasons why this matters. Healing, creativity, uh, mental health, and even physical health are just a few of the reasons why it's important. You know, when I can't sleep, I have to wake up James and ask him what's bothering him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, literally, 99% of the time, if I can't sleep, it's because he's upset about something that he's sleeping through. (laughs) Well, there you are. And it's really true. There's another side of this, too, which I know you also talk about, uh, which is the oneness as, you know, the fabric of our world. Um, I was given an aphorism. I have a a little book called uh, God's Little Aphorisms. And one of them is you can't clean the air over one house in Los Angeles. And I think that just as you've talked about, you know, this individualism and and not recognizing that we are both individuals and part of, uh, you know, the oneness, that um, even in the spiritual movement, the spiritual movement is just as ego-based as the rest of our society. In the spiritual movement, we are so obsessed with our personal salvation. Oh, I want to, you know, ascend or I'm going to get over the, the wheel of samsara or whatever it is. And I, my inner voice that has taught me everything I know pretty much said to me, there is no personal salvation. Well, I didn't like that. But I said, well, why not? You know, because there is no person. And I asked who I was and God told me to look in the stream and said, you are the drop of water that's different from all the rest. And I really got it that because what you're saying is so true, that if someone is pissing in the stream upstream from me, it's going to impact me. Whether people are unhappy, people are angry, people are stressed, uh, every one of us feels it. And then in addition to that, we have literally one world. You cut down the trees in the Amazon, and what happens to your weather? See, it's, it's a, you know what you were talking about earlier about how critical it is that we really get our oneness and stop making it just like a Sunday spiritual service kind of like, oh, yes, we are one, and then I'm going to you know, go be my normal self the rest of the time. Yep. It's, it's destroying us. It's destroying, it has destroyed us on, an, on economic levels when we're just given to greed, and it has destroyed us, uh, you know, on the very real sense of our actual, our... Um, our environment, and global warming and climate change. Well, I think unless we get this uh, business of being connected uh, uh, right, we don't have a future as a species. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I think that uh, this is the ultimate uh, planetary rationale for developing a sense of interaction. You, you, you know, Alice Walker, the great uh, novelist, said that anything we love can be saved. Uh, I think you could turn that around and say, if we don't love it, we're going to lose it. Mm. And I think it is only through this sense of interconnectivity, not just with other human beings, but with all living things on this earth that represents our best chance of making it uh, as a species. Uh, I've even come out uh, in favor of revising the golden rule, uh, which has an expression in all the world's great religions. I think we ought to update it from do unto others as you would have them do unto you to something like this. Be kind to others because in a deep sense, they are you. Yes. And there is a huge difference here. And uh, what we're talking about here is fiddling with the, some of the major uh, premises of some of the great religions in the world. And I think that in large measure on this business of connectivity, uh, and interconnectedness and oneness, they are due for a major revision. Oh, yes. And, you know, the, our religions themselves are, have been separating us instead of bringing us together. By the way, I have a version of what you said about the doing unto others, which is, I am not my brother's keeper. I am my brother. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. And that, that came to me from God, too. I have to tell you, I'm not that smart. So... <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't believe we're coming to the end of this show. Uh, and so please tell us again the name of your book, your website. Well, the, the book is uh, called One Mind, How Our Individual Mind is Part of a Greater Consciousness and Why It Matters. My website is LarryDossyMD.com. Yes. Well, 
I have enjoyed talking to you so much. It has been such a pleasure. And uh, there is such a uh, a nice relatingness about you. You know, you're not you don't come on like some egomaniacal spiritual teacher who's going <laughs> to <laughs> trying to prove to us how much superior to us that you are. And it's refreshing and it's very much from the oneness and I just love you. <laughs> well, it takes one to know one. Give yourself a pat on the back. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh thanks. So we are going to now have James tell us um, sure. what's coming up and then we'll do a very brief wrap up. Sure. And by the way, I too feel a great kinship with you, Larry. So, Thanks, James. <laughs> Next week's topic, an inner revolution in Islam, including gays, women, and secular government. Meet Annie Zonneveld, founder of Muslims for Progressive Values, a woman redefining what it means to be Muslim. Malaysian-born Muslim Annie Zonneveld was radicalized by September 11th, but she wasn't radicalized in the way we traditionally think. She was appalled by how her religion was represented by extremists, and she decided to do something about it. Having tried to work with other groups, she finally founded Muslims for Progressive Values in 2007, and amazingly, her work has spread throughout the U.S. and internationally. Though she doesn't use these terms, her organization is calling for what amounts to an inner revolution in Islam. What do they believe? Why? How did Annie come to step so far outside tradition? Why does she see her Islam as the true Islam? How have others reacted to her message? Where has she been accepted? How has she been opposed? How did her organization grow internationally? And what's the significance of their receiving NGO status at the UN? For this and more, tune in. Discover a different Islam and welcome Annie Zonneveld to our show. Thank you, James. Well, I can't wait to talk to this woman. I am so excited that we found her. And I think you're going to be very interested in it, too. But before we go, we have to come and say goodbye to our wonderful guest. I would like to share as, as a close, you know, uh, Larry was, is talking about how we are part of something greater than ourselves, you know, the one mind. And it is so true. The one mind has spoken to Larry, has spoken to me, has spoken to James, has spoken to thousands, hundreds of thousands. I don't know how many of us on this planet who are hearing the same message. Guys, it's the zero hour. Let's get it together. Let's overcome our ego-based behavior, not just for the sake of others, but most deeply and profoundly for the sake of ourselves. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to us today, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.